unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Damasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun-Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. Later this summer, California could be the first American state to ban discrimination on the basis of caste. California's move and similar initiatives by universities, cities, and towns across the country to raise issues of caste discrimination have generated a massive controversy that is roiling the Indian American community in the United States. One reporter, the freelance journalist Sonia Paul, has been doggedly pursuing the story for several years now, even before it became fodder for national headlines. Sonia is an award-winning journalist, writer, producer, and story editor based in Oakland, California, and she is the daughter herself of immigrants from India and the Philippines. To talk more about her reporting and the state of caste in America today, I'm pleased to welcome Sonia back to Grantham Asha for the second time. Sonia, good to see you, and thanks for coming on the show. Wow, thank you for having me. What an introduction. Uh, I want to begin, before we get into the nitty-gritty of caste in America, by starting with a bit of a vocabulary lesson. You know, just so all of us, including our listeners, are on the same page, you know, when somebody comes to you up and asks you, you know, what is caste? How do you break it down for them? Yeah, basically I'll say caste is a system of social stratification based on inherited descent. So that can include inherited privileges, inherited exclusions. It's a birth-based hierarchy. Um, And in South Asia, it's associated with purity and social status, where you would then see people from different caste communities performing certain kinds of jobs based on that perceived status. So, for example, we hear about the priestly caste or you hear about people who um, who are considered, quote unquote, impure or unclean. And they were they would therefore be the ones performing jobs that are considered unclean, like manual scavenging, for example. Um, but the key things to remember is that it's hereditary and it's hierarchical. And unlike cat. Unlike class, you can't necessarily climb the caste ladder to get yourself into another rung on the hierarchy. That's kind of where you are. And we're going to be talking today a lot about Indian Americans uh, and the debate that's going on in Hindu communities. But it's worth pointing out, and, and, and I know that you've done this in other reporting as well, that caste is something that is uh, spread across South Asia, including um, among non-Hindu groups, right? Right. Yeah, caste exists across South Asia in all South Asian religions, actually like um, the United Nations and I believe either Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International, they have also come out with reports in recent years sort of talking about how caste exists in communities around the world. And these are communities that are excluded or discriminated against based on their birth, their descent, and the kind of work that they're doing. So it's like kind of an amalgamation of labor and descent around the world. And, you know, but it's typically associated most often with India, and India tends to dominate the conversation around caste. You know, it's obviously a very sensitive subject, as you know better than most, having reported on this for a number of years. I think many... 
Indian Americans in the United States have this kind of instinctive reaction that caste is something associated with the old country, with the motherland. It's not really an issue here in the United States. Your reporting, of course, suggests otherwise. You know, before we kind of get into some of the stories that you've written, tell us a bit about just as a reporter, how did you come across this issue? What was your kind of initial encounter? Yes. So I'll take you back to 2015. Um, So I used to freelance in India. I was based in Lucknow and I was there from 2013 to 2015. And when I was there in India, um, caste came up in my reporting in various ways. Like, you know, I remember spending a day with the RSS and interviewing one of their leaders who would only give me his first name because he didn't want me to know his caste because there might be assumptions based on that caste. It was seen as divisive there. Or um, around that time, there was news about India's first gay marriage ad and how progressive it was. But then people were upset. Like there was a line saying, caste no bar, almost as like tongue in cheek. But why even mention caste when in reality, like caste is sort of the precursor to so many arranged marriages, if people are being really honest, what it means to come from the same community means like coming from the same caste. So this was all like the foundation for me. And being back in the US, I was, you know, really just trying to figure out like, what is the next stage of my career going to look like? What am I interested in? Um, And so I remember being on Twitter one day, and I saw like, news about this initiative coming up called Dalit Women Fight. And it was a tour of Black Lives Matter activists and Dalit women going across the country and kind of talking about their shared experiences of struggle and sort of the solidarity they were seeing in each other's um, movements. And especially it was about females, you know, because this time of 2015 was also when the Black Lives Matter mo- like movement was really crystallizing in the U.S. And people were talking where people were talking about how video of like police brutality against black people is really like making it clear the oppression, um, the victimization that they're facing. Similarly, these Dalit women were also like, look, we're also like showing judges, you know, uh, like our experiences and they're laughing at us. Um, we are trying to file cases of sexual assault that we're facing and people won't take us seriously because they're laughing at us and saying like, huh, you're a woman, a Dalit woman, you must have enjoyed that. So I was kind of really transfixed by this sort of like transnational um, nature of these movements. And, um, and so that was the first story I ever reported. And that was back in 2015. And then soon after that, you know, again, because of where my reporting gaze was already starting to situate, um, I started noticing some people in California talk about this textbook controversy where, um, every number of years, the California Board of Education reviews its textbook curriculum and they make decisions about how to portray different kinds of histories, um, by soliciting feedback from the communities themselves. So this has happened in the realm of like ethnic studies and of course, you know, in the portrayal of ancient Indian history. And there were groups that self-identified as Hindus and self-identified as South Asians. And I think it's also important to 
to make clear how they're identifying themselves because that's kind of showing how they're orienting their identity, they were talking about how these textbooks are unfair in their representation of ancient Indian history. Like, you know, to what extent, for example, is caste relevant for these communities, especially when you have like two or three lines about it and, you know, a middle schooler is who may not know much about their caste is suddenly reading like, oh, caste is associated with maybe my religion or it's intrinsic to the history of ancient India where many people there are a lot of convoluted arguments about the origins of the caste system and um, where it comes from. So I spent like a year kind of following that and really getting sucked into the same kinds of energies that we're seeing now. But I think one of those things, one of the things that came out to me was that there was a Dalit software engineer that I ended up interviewing and he was fine with using his name, but he talked about how in his company, like 90% of the workers, all of them IT, they're like 90% of them are from India. And he will only tell them his first name because he doesn't want his last name to be known. Um, he identified as a Christian and he was just like, once my last name is known, they're going to have stereotypes about me and it might affect my situation here. So Sonia, on this point, I actually want to ask you about a young engineer that you profiled for Wired magazine named Siddhanth, and we'll link to your story. Um, he wouldn't agree to use his last name when he spoke to you. And it, what he said, I thought was quite interesting. He said, sharing the story of my life, I have no problem. Talking about my realities, I have no problem. But if people think I'm creating hate via this story, then it will be a problem. You spent a lot of time with Siddhanth, a lot of people like Siddhanth. How do you report on something that is so sensitive where even those who are being discriminated against don't want to speak about caste sometimes? Yeah, and Siddhanth is actually a pseudonym. <laughs> you know, he didn't want any identification uh, to be known. I think this is the answer you'll hear from anybody who reports on sensitive issues is that you have to first work really, really hard to gain the person's trust. Um, and that's an ongoing battle when reporting on CAS, I would say, when it comes to people on both sides of the issue, whether they're for CAS protections or against it. And unfortunately, a lot of this is rooted in mistrust of the media from their home country, which is often India, um, because they've seen the way Indian media reports on caste or doesn't report on caste or how it's highly polarized. So they don't know whether you have a certain bias um, and what, how the reporting might actually be quote unquote manipulated, right? So for me, I try to just be very persistent, explain to people where I'm coming from, um, work really hard to gain their trust. And um, I think for me, what has been to my benefit is that I've been following this issue for years now. And people are sort of familiar with my face. You know, they see me at different events um, or they are aware of my reporting. But also, CAST has now become 
a more popular topic in the news, right? Like just the other day I was talking to someone and they were commenting like, mm, cast is so fashionable now. <laughs> and, and I think people realize that like, okay, there's news around this. There are claims of discrimination. It's um, coming up in policy. We have to talk. Um, but yes, it is it is just about working with them in a way that is comfortable for them and also ethical for me as a reporter um, and just trying to figure out how we can do this reporting and really being patient for it too because I have like kind of like still a very newsy sense to me and I'm like no I want to get the story out now but then I also really don't want to report news news all the time. I really want to get into the stories behind the story, if that makes sense. I mean, I was really struck, Sonia, by something that you said in a recent interview with uh, the radio station KQED in California. Um, and you said the disclosure of caste, of being outed, is a form of discrimination in and of itself, right? Which I kind of had to stop and think about that. I mean, what you're saying is even having to identify or self-identify, say, as a Dalit, as a member of a low caste community, is perceived by Dalits to be a form of discrimination. Yeah, this is this is also mind-boggling for me to wrap my mind around. And I would say, first of all, there's no one way of being a Dalit, right? Um, and people have different ways of negotiating with this identity. Some people are open about it. Others have a kind of like don't ask, don't tell policy around it. And if you think about how it works in India, like when people are applying for government jobs or um, education in public university systems, they actually have to like check a bar, check mark a box disclosing their caste, right? So when they come to the U.S. and they don't want caste to be relevant, um, it is the situation about why should we mention caste? What is the relevance of this? Um and in studying the Cisco case, uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar, there was um, a man who goes by the name of John Doe, and he filed a claim of caste discrimination against Cisco. And basically, the storyline was that his caste background wasn't known, but one of his managers, who had gone to the same IIT as him, did know that did know that caste background, and he revealed it to other colleagues. And after he revealed it, um, John Doe tried to push back. And then there were all sorts of retaliation that happened when he was sort of like isolated from his colleagues or he was demoted. Um, you know, that lawsuit is still ongoing. So this was something that was going on in my mind about um, what it means to be out as Dulit versus sort of, quote unquote, in the closet, if you will. And so when... And later on, after that Wired story, I ended up doing an audio documentary for the BBC about caste discrimination in Silicon Valley. And this question of whether being outed or disclosing caste is itself a form of discrimination was a driving question because the thing is, caste is so taboo. And caste when you're introducing it in a situation where you question the relevance, then you have to wonder how might caste affect the equation here. So for example, in the workplace, people might go up to each other and like comment like, oh, this last name, so you must be from that background or whatever. A lot of the Dalits I have talked to, 
they ask or they try to question, yeah, so what does it matter, right? Why, why are you asking this? <laughs> um, and I think this then has to do with even kinds of unconscious bias that might be at play because of associations people might have with different caste backgrounds. I mean, just to, since you brought up Cisco, I think it's it's worth pausing on this for a second. Um, you know, in 2020, a California state agency filed a lawsuit against the Cisco, which is a, you know, Silicon Valley-based tech giant, alleging caste discrimination against the Dalit employee. Um, and, you know, you've noted uh, elsewhere that uh, f about a quarter, 25 percent of the technical workforce in Silicon Valley is made up of Indian Americans, right? It's a pretty massive number. Um, was this lawsuit um, kind of what opened up the floodgates in terms of opening up this conversation on caste? Because part, one of the questions I have is, you know, why are we having this discussion now, right? I mean, is it related to, to, to the events of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and this kind of national conversation? Is it is it coming from Cisco? What, what, how do you put the Cisco case in context? Yeah, I think there are a lot of different things going on at the same time, where first of all, You've seen the rise of activism around caste in the United States, and that predates 2020. Um, you know, there's this organization called Equality Labs, um, led by Dalit women, and it's been advocating for caste protections for a while. It came out with this survey about caste discrimination in the U.S. in 2018, I believe. Um, and then in 2020, we hear about this case against Cisco and it happened in the middle of, yes, these George Floyd protests um, around Black Lives Matter and discrimination Black people in the United States face. And I think after that, there was sort of this, like, I feel like people's minds were just like expanding into trying to understand forms of discrimination that they might not ordinarily be aware of or conscious of. Um, it was at that time that I was like, you know, I've been trying to do other reporting about caste within the South Asian diaspora for a while. And I had like put it on hold because it was too complex and kind of difficult to get editorial attention on it, um, to be honest. But after that lawsuit, there was so much attention, public attention, um, news agencies were like, what is going on? And, and because it was an actual lawsuit, and unprecedented at the time, there was a lot of attention. And afterward, you know, we've had another lawsuit against um, the BAPS Temple in New Jersey alleging caste discrimination. That's its own other story. Um, and we've kind of seen since that Cisco lawsuit just more discourse around caste in the United States, where, as you've noted in your in your opening remarks, like a lot of colleges and universities have also explicitly named caste. Um, Seattle is the first jurisdiction outside of South Asia ever to introduce legislation banning caste discrimination. And so now we're at this moment in California where a state senator, Aisha Wahab, has introduced a bill to explicitly ban caste discrimination. So it both feels unprecedented, but also like, okay, we've been going on like a, a slow uphill battle it, or a slow uphill movement, however you want to define it. Um, it's gotten a lot of energy now and it's kind of snowballing.
Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. I just want to point out, and it's something that you've raised as well in your reporting, that uh, you know discrimination is not exclusive to the tech sector. Uh, you know, these are these are of course big cases. The Cisco case is one of them. These are name brand companies. What happens in Silicon Valley obviously is worthy of national attention. But based on your reporting, where else do we find evidence of this discrimination, or at least allegations of this kind of discrimination? Yeah, because I was also going to say evidence is very hard to prove. You know, people want a paper trail. But I've heard stories about people working in restaurants um, being isolated, discriminated against because of their caste background in housing where people try to get a room. And often it's it's this scenario where they're not necessarily signing a formal rental agreement, but they know someone who knows someone who has a room available. And it's sort of this like in-community network and they go and try to get a room. And then maybe the room is offered, maybe the room is not, but um, even if the room is offered, the person might take back the offer once they know the person's cast background Recently, I also heard a story about a nanny who used a cup in the home where she was working, placed it back on a cupboard. And then when going to get the cup again, she noticed it was missing. And it turned out the couple had put it in the garage and sort of said, okay, now that is your cup. This is where you will use it. So it was basically untouchability. Um, but, you know, that woman is not ready to talk to a journalist, I have asked. And also in the informal economy like that, um, how do you prove something? You know, if there's, it, it ends up being a he said, she said kind of thing. And also when it comes to sort of investigating these complaints, you always want to talk to the other side, so to speak. And a lot of people who allege complaints are very afraid for you to even ask the other side. They don't want it to be known that they're talking about this discrimination because it's it's traumatic for them. It's also this community sort of discussion that ends up happening where they don't want others to think that they're trying to air dirty laundry or that they're speaking badly about anybody. So it becomes very difficult to really actually source these complaints Um especially because a lot of them, too, in addition, are in precarious immigration statuses. I, I, I want to just ask you about that specifically, because there does seem to be a nexus with one's immigration status, right? So if, 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 if for instance, you know, you're on an H-1B visa, your status in the U.S. is contingent, whereas if you are a U.S. citizen, you are not necessarily worried about being deported or being stripped of your rights to live and work in America. Um, you know, how important is this immigration factor? How does it play into the calculations of those who believe they've been discriminated against, but may or may not want to speak up about it? Yeah, I would say the immigration status um, is a huge 
issue in reporting on this issue. And, and I would say it, it goes beyond even reporting on CAS. I think reporting on anything where people on an H-1B feel that whatever they say might be used against them is very difficult. Um, you know, just over the weekend, I actually met with an H-1B worker, you know, because I want to also just report and write more broadly about what it is to have this experience of being a Dalit right now. Um, you know, forget about like, let's prove caste discrimination or what is it that you're doing? But he just didn't want to be involved. Um, you know, he's waited like over a decade to try to get a green card and he just has no confidence, um, about what he will or will not say may be used against him, not necessarily by me, but by whomever might catch it and think that, um, you know, this person doesn't belong in this country. But I'll also say that when it comes to immigration statuses, it goes beyond the H-1B. Um, and it's to a lesser extent in the Indian community, but it's common among South Asian communities experiencing caste discrimination where people are actually here on political asylum or maybe undocumented. And so if they're experiencing this kind of discrimination, that is already hard to explain. That's not very explicit in the law. Like what wherewithal do they have to go and file a lawsuit? You know, these people are just trying to keep going with their lives. I, I, I want to come back now and ask you about this bill in California. As you mentioned, California State Senator Aisha Wahab, who's an Afghan-American, um, introduced a bill, SB 403, to end discrimination on the basis of caste in the state of California. The objective of this bill is to clarify existing discrimination laws such that they add caste as a protected category along with gender, race, sexual orientation, age, and so on. What was her motivation in bringing this? You know, what was that origin story like? Yeah, she says that, first of all, Senator Aisha Wahab represents parts of what we call the South Bay and East Bay in the Bay Area in California. And these areas are basically, these have been the epicenter of where we're hearing allegations of caste discrimination, not only in Silicon Valley, but also um, California State University East Bay is in her district. And that was the college that pioneered the policy change in the California State University system to add caste as a protected category. And so she had been hearing complaints about this for a while. Um, and, you know, some legal scholars have concluded, others can see we have existing protections like race or national origin or ancestry. And we could argue that caste falls under these existing classifications because of the difficulty she had been hearing about how people were able to seek redress about caste discrimination. She thought, it was better to just specify, let's just name caste ex discrimination exists, or let's name caste as a protected category, because then you actually uh, make clear something that a lot of people would also still debate, which is like, does caste discrimination even exist in the United States? <laughs> and so by making it a protected category, that becomes understood. You also create processes for regulatory agencies to be aware of this and know how to look for it or at least be conscious that they should have to look for it because what some people who have 
claim caste discrimination say is that the absence of caste as a protected category creates a catch-22 for them where they'll try to seek help, but you know, whoever they're talking to, HR, whatever agency, they actually, they'll respond, well, caste discrimination is not illegal. It's not listed as a protected characteristic. It's beyond the scope of what we can do for you. I want to just ask you a bit about the response here, right? I mean, how have the residents of California responded to this bill? What are the main groups who are kind of arguing in favor of, yes, we need this legislation? And who's on the other side opposing it, saying we should not go down this path? Yes. So those arguing in favor of the resolution, um, there's this group Equality Labs, which I've mentioned before. It has really been at the forefront of um, talking about caste and caste discrimination in the United States. There are also Ravidasa communities, which are, um, you know, people from oppressed caste backgrounds in Punjab who, uh, you know, don't go to what we might call like quote unquote traditional gurdwaras because they also perceive the isolation um, from upper caste or dominant caste communities. Um, and then you also have the Alphabet Workers Union in the Bay Area. Um, outside of California, we have organizations like the Sikh Coalition, Hindus for Human Rights. And the and those who are really opposed to the bill, they tend the most vocal people against this are groups are Hindu organizations and individuals, um, especially like the Hindu American Foundation. Uh, they've filed lawsuits against, you know, the Cisco lawsuit alleging it was unconstitutional because they're trying to define what Hinduism is. You also have this group called the Coalition of Hindus of Northern America, which has popped up in the last few years. And, um, you know, on the website, it says it's a grassroots advocacy organization. Um, to amplify, you know, issues affecting the Hindu community in Northern America. And then also, you know, you have other groups. I can't even keep track of it, but um, I remember seeing, for example, the Asian American Hotel Owners Association has come out against this bill um, because the argument that some people say is that, you know, other protected characteristics these are things that everyone has. Like everyone has a race. Everyone has a gender. Everyone has a national origin. Who has a caste? Mostly South Asians. And I say mostly because, again, some people argue that they're the equivalent of caste communities around the world. They may not use the word caste to describe themselves. Um, but basically, these groups feel that you're going to promote discrimination in the name of banning discrimination because you're going to make... South Asians, and especially Hindu Americans, because caste is popularly understood with Hinduism, you're going to make us uh, suspected perpetrators of caste discrimination. Uh, so uh, just to clarify, this is a bit of a dumb question, but, you know, I'm assuming that caste discrimination is almost always being perpetrated by someone of South Asian origin against someone else of South Asian origin because it would be hard for outsiders to know about the intricacies of caste, right? Is that a fair statement? I think it is because caste is so heavily nuanced. It's so regionally specific, like even the pronunciation of a last name in India in one part of the country versus another signifies a different caste community um, or different castes are considered dominant or oppressed depending upon what state in India you are, right? So most of the allegations we've been hearing so far have come from, you know, like South Asians against South Asians, you know, to put it 
blandly like that. But I think um, the question of whether non-South Asians could discriminate based on caste, like, I think that's fine. We just haven't yet heard how that exists, right? Like, um, I think some people now also seem very tense about this because they're getting questions they never have had to face before where like white people, for example, you know, hearing cast in the news, they're asking, oh, what's your cast background? You know, like what cast do, does your family come from? And regardless of that person's cast background, whether they're from historically like privileged communities or marginalized communities, they're like bewildered. Again, it's this question, why is this relevant? So I'm actually like really interested in reporting more about this idea about the disclosure of caste and what it means to make caste known and whether and how caste is relevant. Because I think that is the question behind a lot of these arguments is like, what is the relevance of caste in the United States? What is the relevance of caste for all these generations of immigrants, some of whom may have not grown up knowing their caste? So I want to just ask you a question about the people who are opposing this legislation, um, because some of them have argued that this is part and parcel of a larger phenomenon that they call Hindu phobia. And um, what's interesting about that is, you know, this isn't a term I hadn't really heard much of, say, prior to 2019, 2020. You know, where is this idea of Hindu phobia coming from and 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 what do you think it it it, it signifies but it's very, because i i feel like it's very much in the zeitgeist now it is i think i first started hearing that word around 2017 2018 and you know it's a fuzzy word too because hindu phobia is also used in india and it's it's different in India because Hindus are in the majority there. And in the United States, Hindus are a minority community. But I think in both contexts, you have Hindus feeling vulnerable about their identity and how people perceive their identity. And I think uh, Hindu phobia, I've noticed in my reporting, comes when people are talking more about caste protections, when they feel that um, sort of the reputation that has been built around Hinduism as a religion of peace, its associations with Dharma, you know, like basically wherever you have what they perceive as negative portrayals of Hinduism or Hindu culture, they're alleging Hindu phobia, which to them could actually I think there's like really sincere reaction that no, people are vilifying my religion. They're like calling us cow worshippers. There was like an incident here in California um, of a video where a clerk at a Taco Bell, for example, was being denigrated for being Hindu. So there's that. But then there's also like this um, sort of defensiveness, I think, about talking about caste especially or um, especially in India, when you hear about the politics happening in the country right now, some people will use Hindu phobia or anti-Hindu discrimination as a way to kind of just like cut off the conversation that has more to do with criticism around politics versus criticism around the religion. So this sort of blurriness between politics and religion um, is really difficult. And also um, something that, you know, 
is necessary to unpack more because there are some scholars, for example, who have come out and said this term Hindu phobia, you know, yes, anti-Hindu discrimination exists. But if you look at the context in which we're hearing it more, it's a way to use racial and religious protections to deflect scrutiny away from caste, um, where they're making caste more of a religious argument or a racial argument. When caste, as one person put it, it's all of that and none of that. You know, it's so particular, hence why we need caste protections, they might say. So I just want to uh, ask you, and maybe this is a good way to sort of wrap up about the bill. Uh, this California bill was passed in the Senate. It still has to go through the California Assembly. What do we know about what comes next in the process? Yeah, you know, so the process of the bill becoming law is a long one. It has to go through various committees and be approved. You have to see whether there is a budget for it or if they're willing to allocate the budget for it. So it's going to be heard um, in assembly in in the next couple of months, and there should be a final assembly vote in late August, early September. And then, you know, it goes to the governor's desk, and it's actually at the purview of the governor whether to sign it into law if it gets to that point or to veto the bill, um, because who knows, that could very well happen. Uh, but yes, there's been a lot of advocacy for the bill, advocacy against the bill. Um, in April, there was a high profile committee hearing where people started lining up at like three o'clock in the morning because they wanted to get in and make sure that they could vocalize their position on the bill. Um, you know, I've heard you know, lawmakers are getting calls in the thousands from people saying like, vote yes on this, vote no on this. So it's becoming a very tense issue. And also we're seeing it kind of reverberate around the country too. Um, you know, there is a state senator in Ohio, Nira Jantani. He has come out, I think it's a resolution, condemning Hindu phobia. And in his letter, it explicitly noted what's happening in California and what happened in Seattle, and we must protect Hindus. Um, so it's interesting. And, and you know, politics in the U.S. tends to be divided like Republican, Democrat, but also like California is a blue state. <laughs> and there's also, um, you know, I've already seen a representative in Silicon Valley, who's a Democrat, come out against the bill saying that it promotes Hinduphobia. My guest on the show this week is Sonia Paul. She is a journalist, writer, producer, and story editor based in Oakland, California. She's one of the few journalists who has been covering this issue of caste in America now for a number of years. Sonia, thank you so much for taking the time. We look forward to hearing what happens in California, but I think your work is far from done. This is a story that's going to have a lot of legs, and I think we're going to be talking about uh, this issue in many other states in the union uh, in the months and years to come. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Grant Tabasha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Nithya Lab. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Isabel Villegas is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.
This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.